Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, as we continue our study through this fascinating book written to Jewish believers who are really, they've already made up their mind about who Christ is and trusted in Him, and now they are learning as they go of how to follow hard after Jesus Christ. Last time we were together, we looked at a verse in chapter 4, verse 12, that says, God's Word is living, and it is active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrows, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we challenged ourselves to be in God's Word. God's Word changes lives. It is living. It's from Him. It is active. It is God-breathed. And it does rebuke us. It challenges us. It corrects us. It trains us. It comforts us. We have to be in God's Word. There is no excuse. There is no substitute in God's Word. And we put out uh, last week a challenge to called Power 4. Remember that? If you were here last week, Power 4. And the Power 4 says you need to be in God's Word in a meaningful way, reading it, reflecting on it, meditating on it, and then responding to it a meaningful way four times a week. And when you do that, it's a game changer. It's a life changer. You want the confidence you need? In God's Word. You want to keep your marriage together? In God's Word. You want to grow in Christ? You've got to be in the Word of God. So we challenge you to be in God's Word four times last week, and we'll do the same thing this week. If you didn't make it last week, you got a new slate, right, to do it again today. So it's important to be in God's Word, and we saw that last time. Today we're going to open up kind of a new part of, of this book in, in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. We'll look at one verse today and then two verses next week on Easter. But we want to look at what this book says about a very special position that Jesus holds. The writer's going to introduce it to us today, and then we're going to see this and talk about this over the next several weeks. I'm going to read verses uh, 14 through 16. I believe these are verses every serious believer should have memorized. These are verses that really tell who Jesus is, who we are in Him, and what He does in our life. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, what? Yet without sin, never sinned. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, next time we'll look at, on Easter, we'll look at verses 14 and 16, or 15 and 16. Today, what I want to do is look at verse 14. I'm going to read it again. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is our high priest? What does it mean that he has passed through the heavens? What's the writer talking about in this passage? 
Well, to understand that, we've got to go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And there in chapter 1 and 2, you remember the story. God created Adam and Eve, created man and woman. He put them in the garden. He gave them everything they could possibly want, everything they could need. He gave them one command, just one command. And that command said there's this tree in the middle of the garden. There's a fruit on this tree. If you eat it, you're going to die. And you know what happened? Satan came, tempted Adam and Eve, and they ate of the fruit. And beginning in Genesis 3, beginning in Genesis 3, sin enters the human race, like poison at the beginning of the stream, continues its way all the way through the human race. And sin, God said, you eat it, you'll die. That moment, death entered the human race. Physical death for sure, but also spiritual death. Man and woman, at that point, were in communion together. They were walking with God. They were talking with God like we're talking with each other. They were not inhibited at all. But sin broke that relationship we had with God. And now, from Genesis 3 on, there's this barrier between man and God. You remember the first thing that Adam and Eve did after they sinned? They realized they were uncovered. And they were embarrassed by it. And so they went and they got some fig leaves and they sewed the fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. And then God came and found them. They were hiding from him. Sin causes us to hide from God. But I want you to see what God did in uh, chapter 3. We'll go to chapter 3. There we go. Chapter 3, verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Garments of skin. Now, what do you have to do to make a garment of skin? An animal has to die, right? So God says the penalty of sin is death. You deserve to die. You got these fig leaves on. By the way, that fig leaf that dropped down, another fig leaf is going to come. Not a big deal. But I'm going to take the life of a creature. I'm going to take the life of the creature. It should be you. Because the wages of sin is death. But that creature is going to be a substitute for you. That innocent animal is going to die in your place. And that system of substitution has been, was the the Old Testament way, incomplete, imperfect, just an example of something else that was going to come. But throughout the Old Testament, we have a system of sacrifice. And God did that because he loves us so much. Even when we rebelled, he loved us so much that he would provide an escape. He would provide a substitute. And we see his love for us Not in Genesis, just in Genesis 3, but way back in Genesis 2 when God formed man from the dust of the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. And I love the word formed here. It's the Hebrew word yatsar. And it means to to mold, to form. The noun form means potter. Just look at this video here. Here is a lump of clay, right? God took from the dust and began to form that lump of clay. His hands were on it. 
He was molding it. He had a plan in his mind as he started it. Look at the intimacy that that potter has with that clay. And so God, God's hands were on us molding and making the intimacy that God has. Psalm, Psalm 139 says he does the same thing for us. We're, we're molded together. We're knitted together in our mother's womb. The intimacy that God has for every one of us. The love that he has. Then he took the man from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And in my mind, I'm just thinking of a man lying there, right? Lifeless. And God himself stoops down. The eternal God stooped down and gave this man mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And when he did that, and only God can breathe life into a man, man became a living creature. That's how much God loved us. That's how much he cared for us. And then we broke that communion with him. Sin enters. Then the system of sacrifice begins. And that system of sacrifice continued throughout the Old Testament. The penalty of sin is death. God provides a substitute, an animal sacrifice. You say, that's cruel to put an animal to death. But what's more cruel? Putting the human to death or the animal to death? Both are not in God's original plan. But God loved us so much that he provided a substitute, an innocent animal, to die in our place, to die instead of the Old Testament believer. It's interesting that since man couldn't get to God, in the Old Testament, God came to man. And he did that in the form of a, of a sanctuary. He did that in the form, first of all, a tent of meetings where the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was a, a box about this big, about this wide, about this tall. And on top of it was a, a lid called the mercy seat. And that Ark of the Covenant was a, a, a physical rep, representation of God on the earth. It wasn't God. God can't be held in a box. But it was a physical represent, representation. And it was set, sat in, it was placed, set in, it was placed in the tent of meetings, the sanctuary. And even when, in the Old Testament, when uh, God is giving the law to Moses in Exodus chapter 25, he tells Moses, tell the Israelites to bring the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. This isn't mandatory. You're not twisting anyone's arm. No manipulation, no guilt. If a man is prompted to give, then he brings the money and we're going to build this sanctuary. Later, he does the same thing when Israel gets in the land. He does the same thing and they build a temple, Solomon's temple. Here's a picture of it or a representation of what it might have looked like. Solomon's temple, as we see how beautiful it was, people from every place went to come and look at Solomon's temple. And you see the courtyard there where the sacrifices would take place, and then you see the middle where the the holy place is, and then the tall building right in the middle is the Holy of Holies, and where where the ark was placed in the sanctuary, now it's placed in the Holy of Holies. If you were an Old Testament believer, you would come. There it is right there, back in the back, the Holy of Holies. And the Old Testament believer, you would come one time a year. 
And you would go to the sacrifices, the priests would be there, and you would uh, take your animal, you'd bring with them, according to Leviticus, all the outline for the sacrifice is, is laid out in Leviticus. And you would bring, let's say, your lamb with you. And one of the priests, the priests now are God's chosen people from the tribe of Levi to take care of the temple. And you would go to a priest, and you would find a priest there, and you would lay your hands on that lamb. And the priest would, would sacrifice, would cut the throat of the lamb. And you would be there feeling, physically feeling, the life go out of that lamb, knowing that that should be you. Knowing that that little lamb, innocent lamb, is dying in your place. Those were the, those were the priests that did that. And then there was one priest... Leviticus chapter 21 calls him the priest who is chief among the brothers, and he was the chief priest or the high priest, and he was set apart. He wore uh, garments like these. He wore this this blue uh, woven uh, robe, and uh, at the the hem of the robe or the skirt of the robe were ornamented uh, pomegranates and golden bells, 72 in alternative order. The, the, there was an ephod that he wore over that. And the ephod had a <clears throat> front part and a back part, covered his front and his back. And where it uh, came together on his shoulders, there was either a stone or a, a, or a, or a metal uh, clasp. And the 12 tribes of Israel were engraved in that, in that clasp. Then he had a breastplate. And the breastplate had 12 stones on it. One stone representing... The tribe, each tribe of Israel. Then he had a, had a turban on his head, eight yards of fine linen, twisted and coiled, eight yards, almost, almost the first down, twisted and, and coiled into a cap. And then when he went into the Holy of Holies, he was always barefoot. Because when you take off your shoes, right, when you're standing on holy ground. Now, the priest had a lot of responsibilities. But his main responsibility was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And on the Day of Atonement, if you were an Israelite, you had to go to Jerusalem. And there you would gather around that temple area, and the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would would separate himself out a week before the Day of Atonement to make sure he didn't touch a dead body or do anything that defiled him. He would stay up all night before the Day of Atonement so that in sleep he wouldn't do anything to defile himself. And he got washed, and he got ready, and he put on very simple linen clothes. And then the first thing he did, he sacrificed a bull, and he sacrificed it for his sins and the sins of the priests. Then he would dip his hand in the blood, take a bowl of the blood with him, and he would take incense, and being totally prepared, he would go into this holy of holies, no one could go there except for the high priest, that ark was there, that represented God's station on earth, and then he would throw this incense into these coals, and a cloud of smoke would come up, and that cloud symbolically separated him from the holy of holies. 
the, the Ark of the Covenant. And then he would take the blood and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, the covering of the Ark of the Covenant, and that was a sacrifice for his sins and the priests. Then he would go back out of the Holy of Holies and two goats were chosen. And by lot, one goat was chosen to be sacrificed. That goat was sacrificed. The priest took the blood, and this was a sacrifice for the people, for the people of Israel. Took the blood, did the same thing, went in, he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat, the lid of the, of, of the ark, and then he went back out, and there was that other goat. What do you do with the other goat? Anybody know? He put his hands on the goat. It was, it was a symbolic transferring of the sins of Israel on this goat. And after he symbolically did that, there was a, an appointed person who led that goat out into the wilderness. Remember what the goat was called? Scapegoat, right? Led that goat out into the wilderness and let it go. Never to come back. Two beautiful symbols of what our salvation is about. First of all, our sin is taken care of at the mercy seat, forgiven, and our sins are carried away by the other sacrifice, the goat. Priests would come back out, put on all those uh, ornaments again, his robe and turban and all that, sacrificed then a ram, and he sacrificed a ram for himself, and he sacrificed a ram for his people The Day of Atonement is called, by many commentators, the Good Friday of the Old Testament. It demonstrated that God was preparing a sacrifice for His people. Now, back to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest... Not just one who is great among the brothers, but the greatest high priest. The Greek word is mega, megas, mega high priest. Who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Now one of the first things the writers wants us to remind us in this passage, the thing that he's been telling us all along is that Jesus is supreme. There is no one like him. And in this passage, as he starts describing Jesus as the high priest, and we'll talk about this as we move through these next chapters of Hebrews, as he talks about Jesus as a high priest, he wants to remind the readers again that Jesus is unique. Jesus, the Son of God. And using the name Jesus, he reminds his readers that that was his given name at birth, that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary as a little baby, that he grew up, that he matured, that he was thirsty and he drank, that he was hungry and he ate, that he was tired and he slept. He was a man, fully man, just like you and me. He experienced agony. He experienced pain. He experienced temptation. We'll see that next time. Jesus, the Son of God. And son of means equal to. He is fully God. He is fully man. Fully God, fully man, and this is our great high priest who has what? Passed through the heavens. Now let's think about that. In the the Hebrew mind, depending on who you read, there were either three heavens or seven heavens. And here you are on earth, and God's on his throne in heaven, 
And here are all these layers <clears throat> that separate you from God. In the Holy of Holies in the temple, there was a curtain that separated the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy place, from everything else. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that it was four inches thick, four inches thick. It was woven new every year. And Josephus says if horses were, 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 would be put on either side of it, they couldn't tear it apart. That separated the people from the Holy of Holies. And so the high priest would pass through the curtain to get to the Holy of Holies. Well, what has Jesus done? He has passed through the heavens. He has passed through that veil that separates in the Hebrew's mind God for man. He has passed through the very heavens. And he stands before God on our behalf. He has entered the throne room of God when he died for us on the cross. Turn over to, to uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. Thus it is necessary, here's what the writer says, thus it is necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, these Old Testament rites, the, the high priest going in and sprinkling blood. It's necessary of the copies of these things. These are just the, the, the temple the Holy of Holies, those were just copies. Those were just examples of the real thing yet to come. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but he entered into heaven itself now to appear before the presence of God. And I love this part. Don't miss this. To prepare, appear before the presence of God. Where, why? Why did he do that? On our behalf. Think about that. Just like that Old Testament priest went in on behalf of the people, Jesus himself became the sacrifice, didn't, didn't offer a sacrifice. He became the sacrifice. He passed through the heavens itself, and he stood in his, in his beaten, bruised, and bloodied person before the holy God, he being the sacrifice for our sins, bearing our sins on his shoulders, on the cross, in his body, on the cross, and he stands before God on our behalf. Think about that. That's what, it, that's what his death means. He died on our behalf. Now check this out. In Matthew chapter 27, Remember that curtain in the Old Testament? Four inches thick, woven new every year. Horses can't pull it apart. Matthew 27. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What's the what's significance of that? Well, first of all, it's top to bottom. So only God can do that. God tears the curtain apart. The copies of the old things, the temple, the priest, all that stuff, it's gone. It's over. You do not now need a priest to mediate for you. Our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who lives within us, takes us to, brings us into access 
with God himself. Jesus Christ, our high priest, stands before God on our behalf, and we have complete access to God. Now, because Jesus has done those things, our great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, then we are to what? Let us hold fast to our confession. Now, what does that mean? Let us hold fast to our confession. doesn't say hold fast to your salvation, right? But hold fast to your confession. In this verse, we would see many points of the confession of our Christian faith. We would see that Jesus is fully God, fully man. That, that is a, an essential part of what we believe. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, fully God, fully man. You cannot have a Christian confession if you don't believe that. We see that in that passage. We also see Jesus as our mediator, the one who appears before God and represents us to God on our behalf. He is our mediator. There is one mediator between man and God, and that is Jesus Christ. We also see in this passage, his death is on our behalf. He is our substitutionary atonement. You don't have to have lambs and goats and birds and sacrifices like that anymore. Jesus became our sacrifice. He died on our behalf. That is our confession. That's what we hold to. That's what we know. But it's one thing to know it, and it's another thing to do it, isn't it? Truth always has to be applied. And the writer was writing, of Hebrews, was writing to people who either were involved in persecution or getting ready to be involved in persecution. Now, all that we know to be true, and all the songs that we sang in all the campuses today, great songs, right? We love to sing those. But what if you had someone standing before you with a sword or animal skins ready to tie around you and put those wild dogs off on you? Or over here, there's a bucket of hot tar, and they're going to pour it on you and set you ablaze. And they're going to say, all you have to do is deny Jesus Christ. That's all you got to do. Makes it a little different than just singing the songs, doesn't it? And the writer is saying, don't let that go. No matter what happens, don't let that go. Hold fast to your confession. You know, in the early church, one of the big issues they had was that during the persecutions, there were many martyrs. So here's a guy who didn't recant and he died. So here's a family without a father. And then the persecution goes, and then someone else says, you know what, I, I'm rethinking it. I don't think I'm a believer. And then the persecution went away, and that person who recanted their faith, they went back in the church. So here's a family who lost their dad through martyrdom, and here's a guy who denied Jesus for a while, and now he wants back in. That was a big issue in the in the church, what do we do now? Do we let them back in? What positions do they hold? What do they have to do to get back in true fellowship? I mean, they gave up their confession of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I'm pretty sure that none of us are going to walk out of here today and have any of those things happen to us. So what does it mean for us to hold fast to our confession? It means more than singing songs on Palm Sunday. It means more than having a lot of good theology in our head. It means that we have to apply what we know to be true, the instruction of Jesus Christ, in the daily aspects of our life. So let's think through that. Some of you are dealing with a lot of pain, the loss of a loved one, challenges in your life, illness. And this is a time when you're wondering, what in the world is God doing in my life? I didn't ask for this. I didn't bring this on. This is painful in body and soul. What's God doing? Well, I can't answer that question. But I can just say this. God will give you the strength to do whatever he's calling you to do, and you've got to hold fast to your confession. When people go through challenging times, one of two things happen. They either draw closer to the Lord or they run away from him. A true believer is going to hold fast to his or her confession. Some of you young people are going through challenging times, and it's hard to stay pure, isn't it? All your friends, when your hormones are exploding and when you want this relationship, and all your friends are giving in, you know what's true. You can sing the songs, but you've got to hold fast to your confession, fast to what you know to be true about relationship and purity. Same goes in marriages as well, right? It's hard to be looking at a screen of pornography. I'm going to say it this way. It's impossible to look at a screen of pornography and be holding fast to your confession, men, at the same time. Some of you are here today and your marriages are on the brink of demise. Some of you are at the point where you're saying, you know what, it'd be better to call it quits. But that's not what God's Word says. That's not what the confession says. Hold fast to your confession about marriage and what you know to be true. See, we... we, You know the substitutionary atonement. You know the mediator. You know that God is fully, Christ is fully God, fully man. But now how does this thing work in real life? A lot of you are in business, and man, it's it's tough. You got people all around you lying and stealing and cheating and cutting corners and getting ahead. But not you. Because part of holding fast to your confession is living with the integrity and honesty that God instructs you to live with. Hold fast to your confession. In a materialistic world like ours, it's kind of hard to hold fast to our confession, isn't it? In Scripture, 2,000 times money is mentioned. Jesus calls it the other God. And in our world, there are so many 
believers who are holding a lot faster to material stuff than they are to the confession of their faith. Why is it that Christian ministries struggle so much with money? You ever thought about that? With all the money out there? When a politician can run for an office and millions of dollars are thrown his way or her way. When we got more stuff than we need, why is it that Christian ministries have to beg and plead and scratch for money. Why is that? Could it be that that's a battle that Satan has us in? Because he knows when ministries are, are financed and the gospel can go forth. When ministries are financed, the word goes forth. Now God's sovereign, right? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Anyone know that song? He owns the cattle on thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. He owns the rivers and the rocks and rails. You guys aren't singing along with me here, are you? <laughs> no one knows that song? Okay. Um, but it's a, it's a cool song. You ought to learn it. Um, if God owns all that, why, why doesn't he, he could dump it right here in the middle of the room and we wouldn't have to worry about B, BTW or anything, right? Why didn't he do that? Why does he use people? Because he wants our heart. And he knows where our, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, what? There your heart is also. He wants our heart. See, why is it we can sing songs of praise to God and talk about the confession and evangelical Christians who believe the Bible to be true, Jesus the Son of God, only give 2.6% of their income? A Christian work. That doesn't make sense, does it? Holding fast to our confession is not just some ethereal, intellectual part of our psyche. Holding fast to our confession means that we know what is true and we're going to live it out. We're going to do what God's called us to do. We know what's true, and we're going to follow His Word. We know what's true, and we're going to use everything He's given us, our time, our gifts, our resources, just for Him. That's what it means to hold fast to our confession. We're going to take communion. And uh, we're going to do something a little different, all right? You guys good with this? I know this gets a little weird some people out when we do something different. So it's Easter week, so I'm just going to tell you we're going to do something different. And you don't have to email me this week because you didn't like it, all right? (laughs) Just something different, okay? Kirk's going to come and lead us in a song. And... uh, We're going to stand and sing it together while communion is being passed out. Listen to the words of the song that we're going to be singing as we're thinking about the bread and the cup. Man of sorrows, Lamb of God, 
by his own betrayed. As you're holding the bread and the cup, as it's passing by, think about this as you sing these words. The sin of man and wrath of God. Remember when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus' lead. Silent as he stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned, bowing to the Father's will, he took the crown of thorns. Remember that? Those crowns are about, are about an inch long. Put together and thrust on his head as part of the process of the cross. Think about that as you sing those words. The last verse talks about this great victory we have. And when Jesus says, remember me as often as, uh, as you eat the bread and, and, and the cup, remember me, right? And part of it wasn't just his death, but his resurrection. See, the stone is rolled away. Behold the empty tomb. Hallelujah. God be praised. He's risen from the grave. As you take the cup, we don't, we don't not do this as tradition, as some liturgical ritual. This is for us to proclaim. Now we're making a confession, right? Jesus says, every time you do this, you are proclaiming my death, the purpose of my death, until I come again. So as we take communion today, let us hold fast to our confession as we make this proclamation. Let's stand and sing, and the communion will be passed out. This is for believers only. If you're a believer, you're welcome to participate today.